It is while staring at a blank piece of paper that most people come up with the one question that is every writer's bane. Where do you get your ideas? The problem is, of course, that almost every writer hates to hear it and hates even more to answer it. How do you explain the complexities of a personal thought process that takes the assimilated information of the thousands of books you've read, all the TV and film you've seen, all the life you've lived, and then mixes it up over and over again until something interesting and worth pursuing falls out? You don't. Many authors have dutifully tried answering the question anyway when asked, usually by someone who is not themselves a writer. The typical author will have something glib to say that doesn't really answer the question. I get them from a book in the basement. The fairies visit me in the evenings. Or I was drunk. Which naturally sends the inquisitive fan off to dig into their own basement, lay awake for the fairies, or develop cirrhosis of the liver in the hopes that ideas will come to them too, so they can become a well-respected and beloved author. Or at least a bitter drunk who got lucky once. The better sort of author will put some more thought into it, and if they understand things even a little, try to answer as honestly as they can. Many authors, from Stephen King to Terry Pratchett and more, will tell you that in order to have ideas worth writing about, you first have to start with a nice, solid base of ideas you have read about. By reading everything from everyone about anything, it's vitally important to get other ideas inside your head and let them mix. Other authors attempt to outline their own writing process. Get up in the morning, sit at the computer, stare at the screen for as long as it takes to put some words on it, and then don't stop. Repeat every day until the ideas come. Or... Create a good character and let them lead you through their story. The ideas will happen on the way. Or even if they're particularly honest with you, I don't know, it just happens, that's all I can tell you. Neil Gaiman will tell you that he doesn't know either, but that what works for him is allowing himself to daydream and wonder about things. He says, the skill is not in having ideas. Everyone has ideas every day. Instead, he says... The only difference between writers and other people is we notice when we're doing it. But if you were to ask an ancient Greek where ideas come from, it's quite likely he'd tell you exactly who was responsible. And it wasn't just one person or even particularly any person at all in the strictest sense of the word. No, much like the rest of Greek culture, there was a god or deity for everything. Everything up to and including getting ideas for things to write about, or things to sing about, or music in general, and poetry, and dancing, and science, and even mathematics. Because whatever creative endeavor you were working towards, you might have individual separate deities in charge of inspiring you in your particular field of interest. But before this episode gets too out of hand, let me tell you the end before the beginning. You see, all those authors I mentioned before, the good and the bad ones, were more or less correct. It's just that they don't really understand the process much better than the ancient Greeks did. 
But as we'll discover, the Greeks really had cracked the whole thing open centuries before, because the Greeks knew there was a whole complicated intermingling of things that happened in the creative mind that eventually led it to make songs and music and poetry and books and everything else. It's just that the Greeks didn't have all the tools needed to explain it. Instead, they took it as almost a matter of faith that what was happening was beyond traditional explanations that would make sense to anyone who wasn't creative themselves. And so, they invented the muses to explain it all. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. One of the most basic things you have to understand about the ancient Greeks, aside from the whole democracy thing and the uniting of the disparate Greek city-states against the Persians, about which several episodes, is that they have a polytheistic religion. You know, all those Greek gods and goddesses running around on Mount Olympus, sleeping with mortals and creating the Greek heroes, while at the same time bringing the great Greek monsters into existence because one of them was always offended about something someone else did, and so you had to have a monster about it to really teach the other deities a lesson. Except it was never the deities themselves who had to deal with the whole mess. It was the mere mortals who bore the brunt of some god or goddess's hurt feelings. Which was why you needed the heroes in the first place. Again, see a variety of this show's episodes. And since you are listening to this podcast... I feel fairly confident in saying that that is the sort of thing you do know already. The Greeks had a polytheistic religion featuring many, many upset and petulant gods. Good. We're all on the same page about that then. Which is why you are about to be very upset when I tell you the Greeks didn't have a polytheistic religion. And the reason they didn't is really very simple when you stop to think about it. First, the word religion itself didn't exist in ancient Greek. And by that, I don't just mean that religion was a word of later construction from Middle English through Anglo-French, but ultimately coming from Latin religare, meaning to restrain or tie back, though it does. Instead, what I mean is that a word having the same meaning as we use the word religion for these days did not exist in ancient Greek. They wouldn't have understood what you meant by religion even if you explained it to them very slowly and quite loudly. What they did have, more or less, was a set of agreed-upon practices that dictated when you did what thing. You would know what days to sacrifice on to ensure the harvest, or what to offer to which god to curry favor in a business transaction. And it wasn't that you really believed in these gods in the sense that they gave commandments and you followed them, and you had to do something to grow belief in them among the peoples of the world, and there were sacred texts you held as inviolate, and so on and so forth with the other trappings of religion. It was more like the way we treat the remote control for a TV. If I press these certain buttons in this certain order, I can watch Endor on Wednesday. But if I press them in this other way, then I'm accidentally watching Velma. And who wants to do that? To the ancient Greeks, the gods weren't so much something you had to believe in as a matter of faith. They were just the way things worked. The other problem is, of course, A. 
Because remember, the ancient Greeks didn't start out being the ancient Greeks. They started out being a group of similarly minded, unaffiliated groups of islands and cities who probably had a common origin point and therefore a common base of culture, but then rapidly developed into a bunch of independently autonomous groups that diverged from that common base rapidly as each of the city-states grew and prospered. What seems to be agreed upon by most, though I stress not all Greek pantheons, is that there were 12 major Olympian gods. Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Athena, Ares, Aphrodite, Apollo, Artemis, Hephaestus, Hermes, and either Hestia or Dionysus. Although, if you have to list one of the twelve as an either-or, probably that was enough disagreement to say there were eleven major gods, plus one about which they couldn't make up their minds. But even with that point aside, it's fair to say there is already a problem. See, if you were a Stoic or a Platonist, then your philosophical view of the world might include the fact that there was one deity above those eleven or twelve who really ran the show. This deity would have lived in a world beyond the physical one, which comprised all the other gods in the world as you knew it. And so really, if there was going to be anything resembling a religion in ancient Greece, it should be this god that was the object of worship, sacrifice, and prayer. More importantly, depending on where you lived in the loose conglomeration of islands and cities that considered themselves Greek, you might not even agree on what the names of the gods were, or on what they did, or on what their portfolio of responsibilities were. It might even be that, for example, the goddess you considered to be Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was indeed Aphrodite, but that she really came from not the Greeks, but these other people who you assimilated into your culture, who also considered her the goddess of rain. And so to keep them happy, when you moved in and took over from them, Aphrodite became the goddess of kissing in the rain, even though no other group of Greeks thought so. And there's probably an entirely separate goddess of kissing in the rain while hanging upside down, but let's not get into that. It's much more accurate to say that ancient Greek theology was polytheistic. That is, the study of ancient Greek practices involves a number of different deities arranged in a pantheon with a distinct hierarchy where Zeus is at the top and all the other gods, deities, and allied beings are sorted out below him each of whom have their own unique sects and rituals. In other words, it is a whole big kerfuffle, and the Greeks just more or less got on with it without any of them thinking they really had to believe anything at all. It was enough to know the gods were around, and that if you made all the right motions and said all the right words, things would, more or less, work out okay in the end. Because in the end, what the ancient Greeks were doing was not trying to set up a world-unifying, well-thought-out, cohesive and coherent religious view of the world. What they were really trying to do was explain why the world worked the way it did. And more or less, they were going at it blind. But also, more or less, within the knowledge base they had to work with, they got a lot of it right. See, as inquisitive as the Greeks were about the world around them, and as much as they were able to fill in the, for lack of a better word, mechanics of how it all worked, there were still things they just didn't know about and had no way to discover. For one thing, the tools to discover those knowledge gaps just didn't exist. For another, the patterns of thought needed to discover some things simply hadn't occurred to them. Microscopes and telescopes don't grow from trees, and if your ability to make lenses is insufficient to the task, 
then those tools which might let you learn about cells and bacteria and planets and stars and a bunch of other stuff don't exist, and so make certain discoveries impossible. Similarly, you'll have a hard time coming up with quantum physics if your math doesn't go much beyond geometry, and you might not even know you need to come up with it if you haven't run into the sorts of problems only quantum physics can explain. Which is why, whenever the Greeks ran up against something they didn't know how to explain, they invented a god for it. I don't really know why the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, but for now, let's just say there's a god in charge of it and he pulls it around in a chariot. You know, invisibly. Which is exactly how you end up with the Greek god Helios, his chariot, and the horses that pull it. His son Phaeton, who asks for the favor of pulling the chariot across the sky for one day, but then mucks it up so badly that Zeus has to kill him to prevent either freezing or burning the earth to death with his erratic path through the sky. And also, once you explain the sun and the seasons and whatnot that way, you then have to deal with the night and the moon goddess Selene, and pretty soon, your sky is populated by a bunch of deities riding around in chariots pulling or not pulling things and chasing each other around like a pack of loons. You're basically just saying, here's a bunch of things I don't understand and can't explain in any real way because I lack the proper tools. But this story of gods riding around in the U-Haul business will do well enough for now so I can just stop thinking about it all and work on something else, finally and at last. Which you do. And then, when you run up against another dead end in whatever field of study that is, you invent another god to deal with that hard stop. Unless, of course, you can make the case for one of the already existing gods you know about to take on some of that new role as well, which is much appreciated by all the other Greeks because, really, there are so many minor and major deities in play now that you can't even keep their names straight in your head, and a bit of thinning seems to be in order. Besides which, people's imaginations are getting a bit stretched, because not only have you invented a sun god and a moon goddess, you've also invented gods to deal with the dawn and the sunset, another one entirely to deal with the night, and probably a couple more to deal with stars that move and stars that don't, and at that point, your imagination is starting to run a bit thin. Fortunately, the Greeks had a solution for that as well. Not that they understood how imagination and, more importantly, inspiration worked, just that they too had got to the point of, where do you get your ideas, and become just as stuck as the rest of us. And as we now know, when a Greek thinker got stuck, they invented new gods and other deities to act as a sort of placeholder for what they didn't understand. What they came up with this time was the idea of a muse, or rather of several muses, each attuned to a specific area of what we can call artistic effort. They began with three named muses, by which you will see that the ancient Greeks understood the principles at work, but couldn't explain why or how it worked in any satisfactory way. The first of the three original muses is Melite and she was the muse of thought and meditation, which, if you know your ancient Greek, would be obvious, because it's pretty much what her name means, ponder and contemplation. Second, and these are by no means a hierarchical ranking of the muses, just the order in which they are being introduced, second is Aidi, muse of voice and song. Finally, the third of the original muses is Nimi, the muse of memory, 
who you may recognize as the root of the word mnemonics, a trick to help you remember things. And you can sort of see how the Greeks thought it worked just in those three muses, as if the first time they were suggested as a solution to where ideas came from had something to do with singing and songs. And since the ancient Greeks relied for quite some time on an oral method of passing on history and stories, it makes a certain amount of sense. In order to come up with a new and interesting song or story or what have you, first you have to think about and practice whatever it is you are doing. Then remember what has come before and how it was done. And finally, combine those two, practice and memory, into the performance, which, with a bit of help from the appropriate muses, should result in something new, surprising, and enjoyable. Practice, remember, perform. The process for getting new creative works. And that really is the basis for most performances. You know this yourself if you've ever taken up an instrument or been involved in a performative art of some sort. You practice, 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 study those who mastered the art you are working on to see what might be learned from them, and then, having done all the practical things you can do, you put it all together into a performance and hope for the best. The ancient Greeks understood the process and came up with the three muses to help explain it the best they could. Naturally, the Greeks couldn't leave it at that, though. See, song is so specific. It's all well and good if it works like that for singing, but how do we know it works like that for everything else, too? Well, we don't. Aidi has a pretty specific portfolio, and it's hard to see how her influence might relate to other fields. And besides, not everything relies on memory and a little quiet time to oneself sitting in a corner thinking. A lot but not everything. So naturally, the Greeks gradually came up with a boatload of other muses to help explain how things worked in other creative endeavors, and even in some endeavors you might not think are all that creative in the first place. Take, for example, Urania. You wouldn't think astronomy necessarily needs its own muse, but that is what she is. Her name means heavenly or of heaven, and she it was who inspired theoretically, astronomers to do something. With stars? Oh, no, see, what it was was that she spent a lot of her time telling fortunes with stars. That's it. Unless, of course, it was something else entirely, like being concerned with poets and philosophers and inspiring them to raise their souls to heavenly heights? Which explains, I suppose, how she got to be the muse of Christian poets during the Renaissance? I don't know. It's complicated. Look, it's all very confusing. Most of the muses, and there are many, though traditionally there are about 12 that are in general use by most Greeks, most of the muses have been conjured up in such a way that suggests a bunch of five-year-olds were really upset that one of them got a slice of cake when all the rest didn't. So not only do you have Aidi, who is generally thought of as the muse of song and voice, and you'd think that would cover quite a broad spectrum of related activities, she doesn't. Apparently, to keep all the Greek musical artists of the time happy, you also have to have polyhymnia, muse of sacred poetry, sacred hymns, as well as dance, eloquence, pantomime, and agriculture? 
Erato, the muse of the sort of poetry you read to people in the hopes of getting them really quite interested indeed in coming back to your place to look at your etchings, lyric poetry, and impressions of other people? Terpsichore, which if you know your Monty Python, you'll recognize as the muse of dance, but also the chorus, by which is meant the group of people on stage during a typical Greek play who weren't the actors, but represented the voice of the writer filling in all the background and gaps for the audience, so they actually had a hope of understanding what was going on in the play and why. And then there was Melpomene, who started out as the muse of chorus, but then must have decided she didn't like that gig, handed it off to her sister, and became the muse of tragedy, because that seemed like a way more enjoyable job. Thalia, the joyous and flourishing, was the muse over comedy and idyllic poetry, which would seem like enough to be getting on with. Comedy is hard. Euterpe took on the job of inspiring poets, dramatists, and authors, while also driving a thriving liberal and fine arts program all over Greece, while also, also, being the one who had to hear all the musicians' prayers for inspiration late on a Saturday night when they'd been through their entire repertoire and the bars were still open. Cleo is the muse of history, and it really doesn't seem like you'd need much of a muse for history. It's just writing things down that had already happened, surely. Especially since Herodotus had only just invented the thing, but see our episode on history to get to grips with that. Meanwhile, Cleo ended up repping for lyre players, which we can only assume meant that a lot of what little history existed at the time was set to the music of the lyre, and probably we should be grateful that's not still the case. And finally, there was Calliope, who was the muse of steam-powered pipe organs played at the circus. No, wrong. She presided over eloquence in epic poetry, was said to have the most amazing voice ever, and gave birth to, among others, Orpheus, who once went to Hades to retrieve his wife Eurydice, but botched it up at the last moment. Calliope wins singing contests, is credited as the wisest of all the muses, and gets credit for inspiring three of the four major Greek literary works most people are familiar with, just by cultural osmosis. And all this is what the Greeks came up with to explain just where it is ideas come from. Obviously, they had no real hope of understanding how the human mind worked and what caused it to be inspired enough to create something new and exciting that hadn't really existed before. They knew very little about memory and neural pathways and how the brain puts two different things together to come up with something new. But they got pretty close to the process anyway as close as they could, at least. Fortunately, we modern people know all about this stuff now. We've worked it all out and can tell you exactly where writers get their ideas and how. No, of course we haven't. But we have begun to close in on the mechanisms in play. As psychologist Melissa Berkeley explains in the December 2017 issue of Psychology Today, your mind is a dual process system, which means that two processes are going on at the same time. On the one hand, you have the systems you are in control of, called the controlled systems, which make most of the decisions in your day. What you have for lunch, what clothes you wear, what things you work on at your job, that sort of stuff. It's the only bit of your mind that you are truly aware of. The other process going on in your mind is the unconscious system, 
It watches and takes in everything. And the really important bits, the things you need to know about right away to keep you alive, for example, get kicked upstairs to the controlled system for it to deal with. Berkeley hypothesizes that it is the interplay of these two systems which spark creative ideas and assemble disparate bits of information into something new and interesting. The unconscious system notices something, thinks it is important, and gets the controlled system to pay attention to it. So you get a new idea. And as far as that explanation goes, it's fine. But if you're stuck on something and looking for inspiration, it's not the kind of system you can rely on. You won't get anywhere waiting on two bits of your mind to coordinate things and produce inspiration. You're far better off going the muse route. Thank you for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. I hope you've enjoyed it. This episode is a Fiddleback production and was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Find more episodes at gmwordoftheweek.com and follow the show on Twitter at gmwotw. You can help support the show at buymeacoffee.com fiddleback with both one-time and ongoing pledges. I've added a new bare-bones tier to buy me a coffee. Technically, it's called the Bookmobile tier because we're library-themed. But what it amounts to is the ability to help support the show for as little as $2 a month because, as has been pointed out, things got a bit inflation-y out there, and I thought it might be nice to see something with a lower cost for a change. The trade-off is, because this is the cheap and cheerful support tier, there aren't many perks with it. It's more like if you just want an easy way to show ongoing support, this is it. $2 a month, bang, done. Music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions, home of minimalist acoustic music for production and pleasure. Visit them at sessions.blue. Show up, show up, show up, and after a while, the muse shows up too. If she doesn't show up invited, eventually she just shows up. Thank you.